Hi, welcome to the Bioinformatics Chat. Today I'm speaking with Antonio Marco. Antonio is a lecturer in the School of Biological Sciences at the University of Essex, and uh, he's the author of Sid Vicious, which is a software for predicting microRNA target sites. Hi, Antonio. Hello, how are you? Antonio, let's start with uh, your background. Uh, how did you end up researching microRNAs and writing your own software to do that? Right, it's a, it's a long story because I obviously didn't know what a microRNA was when I was a student. Uh, so I'm, I'm a biologist by training, and my PhD is in genetics at the University of Valencia in Spain. So I initially started to work in, in gene regulation and, and biological networks, and I moved to several positions working on, on that. I, I was in Arizona State University working for a while in, in transcriptional factors. And, um, but I was, you know, trying to, to reconstruct the evolutionary history of trans transcription factors and how it affects to the evolution of development. Problem is that with transcription factors, you cannot pretty much predict the binding of these factors based only on the primary sequence of the proteins of the transcription factors. Uh, so I was a bit kind of um, disappointed, didn't know how to, how to move in that direction until someone pointed me into microRNAs. So back in 2008, I didn't even know what a microRNA was and someone told me, have you checked this, these molecules there? So I read a couple of papers and I was really impressed. And I said, well, that's the kind of molecule I, I like to study because they are very short and you can predict more or less, the target's based only on the primary sequence. So that kind of um, started me to, to think about what kind of uh, evolutionary models I can I can build using this advantage. So I pretty much left everything behind in the in the states, and I flew to Manchester to join uh, Sam Griffiths Jones Laboratory at, at Manchester. He was at the moment still it is um, hosting Mirbase, which is the the repository of microRNAs. Uh, so I joined his lab to work on, on microRNA evolution, uh, taking into account these, these features of the, of the microRNAs. And that's how I started to work on, on microRNAs. And for the software, well, initially I didn't have an interest in developing software because I was very happy to run someone else's software. And the problem was that I was finding that the software that was existing was mostly either running on custom datasets that they had, and that you can only access predictions, for instance, for the microRNA target sites, the predictions that someone else calculated, and then you can access the table. Or they were kind of obscure software that use a lot of parameters, machine learning. Um, so I couldn't really go inside the black box of, of this software. So I need something simpler that allow me to, to predict targets based on very simple rules and that I can run on custom datasets. That was how I started to develop the initial bit of state pieces and started to develop software for microRNA research. So by the time, did you already have some programming skills given your background in biology, or did you have to pick it up from scratch? Um, well, I started programming when I was a PhD student. Well, a bit before I was doing, you know, this basic programs like plotting a circle in an abstract uh, CPC back in the 80s, but, but that was uh, when I was a child. But the, the real programming I started during my PhD, I, I learned some Perl and some Java, and then during my first postdoc, I learned a bit more of programming, but never developed into a, a proper skill. And it was in, uh, while I was working with microRNAs, precisely because of the of the need of developing all these tools, uh, that I got uh, programming a bit more serious. And I started to program in Perl and a bit of R, uh, but a bit more advanced using object-oriented uh, programming. 
And that was something relatively easy that I started to, to do like in 2008, 2009. Uh, interesting. So you said you came to Manchester, right, to work with uh, Griffith Jones. Yeah. But uh, then you transitioned to uh, the University of Essex. Do you want to talk a little bit about that transition? Sure. Uh, so, so I spent, uh, I have to think how many years, about four or five years uh, working with Sam Griffith Jones. It was a very, very productive time of my life, both in number of papers, but also in the, in the skills I got. I learned a lot. Uh, Sam is just a fantastic person and, and his team, all the people there, uh, all very skilled people. Um, but at some point, you know, I, I just uh, was aging enough and I wanted to have an independent career. And, um, you know, I tend to, to move from institution to institution if I want to do something new. So I thought it was my time to leave Manchester to, to a different place. And uh, also, Manchester is a lovely city, but it's a bit dark. And so so we wanted to do something more sunny. And uh, there was this opportunity in Essex. The opportunity saying that uh, there was no genomics group in Essex. It was something new. It was a bit risky to go to a place in which there were no genomic research involved. So I kind of apply, I got this lectureship, tenure position here at Essex, and I continue my work in, in microRNAs. And now actually we grow to a big genomics group of six PIs plus students and postdocs. And, and I moved here about in 2013. Was it challenging to arrive at this university where no genomics was taking place? Like I, I know at the University of Manchester, they have like a whole core facility for genomics, yes. right? Yes. Presumably that's a big help. How was it like? like in Essex without all that uh, resources? It was a big change, actually. So the first year and a half when I arrived, there was no one else, basically. Well, there was people doing genomics as part of their research portfolio, but not as the, you know, as the main topic. So when I arrived, I was feeling, I have to be honest, a bit, a bit lonely in the sense that no one else was doing what I was doing. And uh, it was really hard to, to take off and particularly setting up the lab because even though I'm computational biologist now, I still have a small lab uh, doing sequencing and small things. So that was really hard to get everything ready. And uh, I didn't have the proper computational resources like a cluster, for instance. So it was a bit tough, but it was worth because I had time to rethink about my career and, you know, wrote a couple of papers uh, in the meanwhile. And then, um, so Leo Shagwick, uh, as a professor, joined our genomics group as a leader. And then after that, we recruited five more people. And uh, that everything changed because now we have a, a computing cluster, uh, sequencing machines, uh, proper labs. So the university actually invested uh, about 1.5 million on the whole thing. So I have to say that even though at the beginning it was a bit hard and it was a bit risky to go to a institution that didn't have these facilities that Manchester had, um, I think I'm very happy with it, with the move because now we are, we're having a, a successful group. We are well funded. We have resources. We have facilities. And so far we are a, a happy group. So, so that was good now. Very nice. And how do you view yourself now? Like, do you still view yourself as a biologist or, uh, now you've moved into this more programming intensive area? Have you ever thought of, uh, moving towards, uh, or like computational problems in biology? Um, well, it's, it's a tricky question in the sense that I have two answers. So first of all, I consider myself a biologist above all. So even if I spend most of my time programming and solving algorithms and developing mathematical models still, um, my interest is biology, is to solve biological questions. So, so to the question if I consider myself a biologist, yes, I'm a biologist. Uh, but in the terms of, of programming, I'm... Um, so I used to use programming only to solve small problems, 
mostly that data parsing. Uh, now I'm getting more more interested in, in developing more complex mathematical models, population genetics models, and getting more into computational and theoretical, let's say, science, but still within the realm of biology. So my goal is always understand the biology of things, understand life. So what is your current research agenda? What, what are like the big questions that you strive to answer? I just uh, mentioned about population genetics. So that's kind of the main research topic in my lab now. So, so I moved from working on the evolution of transcription factors and other genes. And then I started to work on the evolution of microRNA genes itself and a bit of their targets. And now I'm interested in the evolution of the population level because it's actually where evolution happened. So all what we see in evolution is actually the product of what happened in a population. So now I'm interested in developing population models of evolution of microRNAs and their targets. And um, using this, we are covering different aspects, like what is the dynamics of gains and losses of target sites in a population, or what are the type of selective pressures that you have in target sites and in microarrays in different populations. And also we are developing this into, into applications. So for instance, uh, to give an example, we are developing a computational method that identifies potential cancer biomarkers just by looking at how the microRNA targets on oncogenes, which are genes involved in cancer, behave in different populations. And so far, I have to say that uh, uh, the results have been very, very promising. So we are very happy to see that uh, we, we can say something, um, probably something in the near future. But also, not only on micronase, I'm also uh, working on um, all sort of regulatory molecules and applications. So in RNA binding proteins, some of the algorithms that I was developing for microRNA targets, I can twinkle them to work on RNA binding proteins or in something called the oxyribosomes are synthetic molecules. And uh, thanks to that, we are also in collaboration with uh, cancer biologists to apply all these things into, into actual gene therapies and, and diagnosis tools. Okay, so let's dive into microRNAs. For our listeners who may not be familiar with microRNAs, could you briefly explain what they are, why they are important, what they do? Okay, um, microRNAs are, are, first of all, are, are genes or are encoding genes, and they are tiny, the microRNAs itself, they are very tiny, small RNA molecules that are like about 20, 21, 22 nucleotides long. So these are very small. Yet, they regulate pretty much every biological process you can think of. So what they do, these small molecules, once they are produced in the cytoplasm, they bind by partial complementarity to transcripts. So by this binding, what they trigger is the, the activation of a machinery, which is called the, the risks complex, which stops or, or repress translation of the transcripts. And eventually, it also degrades the transcripts. So it's a very efficient way for the cell to get rid of the expression of genes. So you have genes that are activated by transcription factors, right? So a protein binds to the DNA, and then the gene is transcribed. The transcript is processed, and then it goes into the cytoplasm, Right? So one way of controlling the expression is going to the transcription factor, activating or deactivating. But once the transcript is in the cytoplasm, the cells still have a second mechanism, which is, among other things, these are the, the microRNAs. And the microRNAs can deactivate the expression of this transcript very finely. And um, uh, when they were discovered, they were discovered in the, in the worm originally, C. elegans, it was believed to be kind of a, a worm oddity, something strange. I, I always tell my students that worms are like uh, Las Vegas. So what happens in the worm stays in the worm. 
But actually, years after it was discovered that these molecules were in, in the fly, in humans, and now we know that they are even in plants, they regulate pretty much every aspect of the cell life in physiology, particularly in development. So in a simple definition, microRNAs are regulatory molecules that regulate everything. And for that reason, you can find it in cancer and any other disease you can think of. Okay, so your software is vicious. What computational problem does it solve related to, to microRNAs? Okay, so um, first of all, um, I have to say how, how we started SeedVisus uh, as, a, as a very simple algorithm. So SeedVisus started as a collection of, of scripts with no real connection between them. Just as a way of, of detecting this uh, complementarity between the microRNA and the gene transcripts. So there are many software that do that. Um, so mainly TargetScan, for instance, the most popular, it also computes this, uh, find these seed regions in the transcripts complementary to the, to the microRNA. But as I said, some of these programs like TargetScan and Diana, which is uh, very efficient, um, they pretty much provide the targets from a preset of, of genes that they, that they calculate. But in my case, I need to, to do this calculation with custom sets, particularly when you use randomized data and simulations. So the sets you're talking about, is that the sets of microRNAs or the set of genes that are regulated? Both microRNAs and genes regulated. Uh, so for instance, if you go to target scan, you can go to the set of humans and then you get one ensemble data set of genes, of transcripts, and one mere-based data set of microRNAs. And they compute all these targets. It is true that it exists a standalone version of target scan, but it's not well documented. It's, nothing, it's not something very straightforward to use, and you have to format the data. Uh, so that's why I needed something to run fast and own my own data. That's how it started. So at this moment, I didn't solve any, any computational problem because that was already done in, in, in other programs like target scan. And also, I wanted not to rely on, on evolutionary information. That was the other thing. The reason being that uh, many of these prediction algorithms, they, they give more weight, more importance to targets that are conserved between different species. And that makes sense because uh, when you predict targets, you get many false positives. So you want to get rid of many of the false positives if, you, if you're going to the, to the lab and, and, and try some of them. It's very expensive. So one way is to, to consider that if a target is conserved, it must be functional. And therefore, I would go for them. But in my case, I was working the evolutionary turnout of targets. So if I was using a algorithm that considers evolutionary conservation, you know, to detect a target, and I wanted to study the evolution, I'm incurring a circular reasoning, if you know what I mean. Yeah, sure. That was a big problem. So that's the, the other thing. I want to get rid of, of this evolutionary conservation. But then I started to, to do other things. And uh, pretty much every time I had a problem with microRNA target prediction, I was writing a small script basically, to add to this collection of scripts to study targets. So the changing point went when I started to study uh, near targets. So near targets are non-target sites, but that if you change only one of the nucleotides in the target, it will become a target site, at least one canonical, what is called a canonical target site. When you say it will become a target site, do you make the judgment based on your prediction algorithm or on some experimental data? Uh, it's based on prediction algorithm. It's based on what is called the seed sites or, or the canonical seeds and non-canonical seeds defined by a very influential paper by, by Dave Bartel in, in 2009. So that comes from a large collection of experiments of other people, uh, including Bartel and, and uh, Phil Seymour and, and many others, that they figure out the rules of micronate targeting. 
And of course, these rules are not 100%, you know, sure. I mean, there are like a lot of variation, but they came up with a list of different ways a microRNA efficiently target a transcript. And these rules were very simple, actually. You need to have a pair of six nucleotides in what is called the uh, seed region, and then either a adenine nucleotide in the transcript in a given position or another extra pairing in the other side of the microRNA and the transcript. So... Um, you can check this in, in, in my SIDVCS website. So these are what is called the canonical sites and the marginal sites. So these are efficient or less efficient sites predicted computationally. So we don't know if they are real or not, but we believe they are close to, to what the cell identifies. So by, by enumerating these sites, if you change one nucleotide in one of these target sites, canonical target sites, then it is not a target site. But I had a interest in studying these sites for one reason. So when you study a population, the reference genome you get not always have the nucleotides in each position that is most common. It's just a reference genome. When you go to the population, sometimes you may not find a target site because it's one nucleotide different to the canonical sites. But then when you study the population data, you observe that actually it's more frequent the target sites. What I was trying to identify here is target sites and what I call near-target sites, in order to have a full evaluation of all the sites that can be or not be targets in a, in a let's say, a reference genome. And then when you go to the population data, you can evaluate what is the frequency of the target sites and the non-target sites in the population. And you may think, well, what's that for? Well, that, that comes from a, from a previous paper I published uh, on Drosophila, in which I was studying the population dynamics of target sites in maternal genes. So maternal genes are uh, those genes that they're deposited, the transcripts are deposited by the mother into the embryo. So before the development starts in any species, before your own genome is activated, the first in instructions of development are driven by the transcripts and the proteins that your mother puts on you, basically. So what I found doing uh, some similar thing to what CDCs does now, detecting near targets, is that I was studying the evolutionary dynamics in a population of the target sites in these maternal genes. What I found is that, surprisingly, that maternal genes tend to avoid to have selection against target sites that are targeted by maternal microRNAs. So, in other words, these genes, they don't want to be suppressed. Exactly. By the maternal microRNAs or by the uh, zygotal microRNAs? By the maternal, actually. And the signal disappeared with the zygotic, which also makes some sense because we know that zygotic microRNAs help to degrade the maternal transcripts in a process called the maternal to zygotic transition. So when you put in the egg both things, maternal microRNAs and maternal transcripts, in the population you can observe that there is a selection against target sites in the transcripts against the microRNAs that are co-expressed, basically. So... That, which I call selective avoidance of microRNA target sites or selection against microRNA target sites. So I suspected that that was going on in, also in human population, that it was something more widespread. Um, so I wanted to write a software basically to help to analyze all these things and uh, also including other features, but I didn't have the time, didn't have the, you know, the money, the resources, etc. So that was kind of, you know, like a project that I never end. Until I was lucky enough, so I put a proposal together with all these findings uh, to the Wellcome Trust, and, and I got some funding for it. Thanks to this funding, I could, uh, you know, find the energy, the time, 
which at the end is money. Uh, so the time and the money and the resources to buy the, the, the computer server to, to put this into a program. So I spend some time and actually instead of putting together the scripts I have, I start from scratch. So I start to, to build a new package, a new program, and I build the seed visits package now involving near targets and other features. And also I, I prepare the web server version in which users can upload their own data and, and run it without even needing to know any command line command or anything. It's a long story, but that's how the, the seed visits was, was shaped. Okay. So let's um, go back to s- discussing Sid Vicious in a second. But first of all, I'm curious about your work on uh, maternal microRNAs. I'm just trying to understand how, why this would happen, because you would think that all the genes, they sort of, they have a common goal, right? It's mm-hmm. not like mm-hmm. a competition of one versus yep. the other, because if uh, microRNA suppress some important transcript, then the uh, the organism wouldn't survive, presumably, right? That wouldn't be good. So why is there this competition? Why do you think? Right. Uh, that's that's a good question, actually, and uh, something that uh, drove me crazy for, for months, because that was uh, brought out by, by the reviewers of the, of the original paper. And I have to change, actually, the discussion of the paper, and it took me a long while to, to find out why that, that may happen. And, and the model, and it's a model, it's my current model, I don't know if it's 100% true, but it's, it's the closest to what I think is real, is that it's a consequence of genetic conflict between co-expressed products. So let's suppose you have a, a microRNA, right? MicroRNA is expressed in liver, to give a different example. You have a microRNA expressed in liver, in liver that targets a transcript that is also expressed in the liver, right? So this is a functional relationship. So you have this microRNA, is in liver, the transcript is in liver, and microRNA A targets transcript B. And this needs to be conserved because it's important. Now, if you think about it, there are probably thousands of transcripts co-expressed also in the same area, right, in the, in the same tissue, in the liver. And for these other thousand genes, they don't want to be repressed by, that, by a microRNA. That's obvious, because otherwise you, you would screw, basically, you, you, would, you would ruin the, the regulatory system. In other words, it would be very unlikely that you develop a target site by random for a microRNA. But when you take into account the length of the 3 UTRs, which often goes to above 10, 10K, 10,000 uh, nucleotides, and that it takes only six to seven nucleotides to develop a target site, the chances, by chance, basically, to develop a new target site in a transcript for a co-expressed microRNA are very high, just by mutation during a, a population, the normal population dynamics. So that's why there is a constant mild selection, but a constant selection against developing target sites for something that you don't want. So that's why I was detecting, but only when using large data sets. So I was not detecting the conservation of targets because it's only like 1% maybe of the total targets. However, the rest of the targets are conserved to not to be targeted, let's say. So they are near targets because if they are targets, you know, you are bound by the macro you don't want to. And let me ask something else because uh, when, when I published this paper, Soon after, so almost at the same time, there was another paper published uh, in which they show a similar pattern in bacteria for RNA regulatory molecules, not microRNAs, but other type of, of molecules. Kind of the similar thing. So these are RNA regulation, and you get that most products in the cell have selection against the regulatory motifs that leads to the regulation for a similar mechanism. 
And quite recently, a uh, couple of months ago, there was another paper in, in Molecular Biology and Evolution by Harslap, uh, in which they also describe uh, selection against RNA binding motifs in, in 3 prime UTR. So, so my feeling was that that was a evolutionary conflict, and that was widespread, and the literature is showing that actually that's something that it may, it may be happening at, at different levels. And that's one of the, the, the research topics that we are investigating in our lab. Ah, interesting. Yeah, that kind of makes sense. If someone would want to repeat your experiment using Sid Vicious, right? They would download your uh, software, they would install, compile, and uh, presumably there's no compilation. It's written in Perl, right? It's Perl scripting and the, I, um, so there are a couple of programs in C, but they are really pre-compiled. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they would download Sid Vicious. Mm-hmm. What would the workflow look like? To repeat the Drosophila experiment, it won't be a straightforward because you will still have to do some data parsing yourself. Although in the in the original paper in, in G3, uh, I describe in detail the protocol you have to follow, where to download the data and, and how to process the data in order to analyze it. However, I'm aware of, the, of this, that it's not easy to reproduce the whole thing. So what we are doing now, actually my, my, one of my postdocs, uh, Andrea, is now working on developing a, a database that will connect the output of the seed visas into the evolutionary dynamics of target size. So let me let me explain this uh, slightly in more detail. So what we are getting now, what she's getting now actually, is to compile data from human populations, map this against target sites and near target sites with seed visas, and then compute the allele frequencies, which is how different alleles are distributed in the population for each one of these sites. And so we are working to, to, to get this ready so it will be publicly available and very soon, you know, people will be able to access the data. Likewise, um, once we get this human, which has priority because the, the, the project, uh, we have the funding, uh, we will do this for also for Drosophila to reproduce all the data I did, for instance, in the other paper and other species uh, with population data like C. elegans and, and others. What data would you have to collect, uh, for this kind of experiment, whether in flies or in humans? Right. Okay. If we go back to the regulatory conflict that I mentioned, the problem comes always from, or at least we believe that is the case, uh, between microRNAs and gene transcripts that are co-expressed. So if they are co-expressed, we predict that there will be some conservation of targets, but for a majority of them, there will be selection against developing targets. And when you say co-expressed, you mean like expressed in the same types of cells or at the same time? Either. It has to be in the same time, in the same place. But uh, sometimes we don't have, well, most of the time we don't have all this information at the same time. So what we are working here with humans, for instance, is to get microRNAs and transcripts that are expressed in the same tissue. So we are working now on liver, brain, two parts of the brain, but this is all publicly available data. Two parts of the brain, liver, heart, and testes, I believe, if I recall well. But you're not no longer looking at the zygotes? Uh, not in humans. We're not looking at human yeah. cycles because the data is, is not that good. Will, will there be like ethical questions associated with that? Well, indeed, indeed. Uh, we will only use uh, public available data. Just going for the paperwork to get this, this done is, is a nightmare. Obviously, for ethical reasons, it's not easy either. But we don't need to go to the cycles. So, so we just want to know if this is a widespread phenomena in all tissues. So what we need to have is just co-express in any tissue or any developmental stage. So for humans, it'll be like adult tissues. There are um, lots of data publicly available now 
for both transcripts and some for microRNA. But for other species like C. elegans, uh, Drosophila, Melanogaster, we can go to tissue and developmental time, which will answer the, the first part of your question if, if you need, you know, time and space. And for, for these cases of Drosophila and, and C. elegans, it'll be interesting to see how the evolutionary dynamics change depending on whether the, the, you know, the gene the transcript and the microRNA are expressed in the same time and in the same place or only in the same place at different times, etc. Okay, so you collect this data about the uh, the genes or transcripts that are co-expressed, mm-hmm. and then how do you how do you determine whether there is a negative uh, selective pressure? We use a very very simple models of population genetics. What we compute is the allele frequency between the targets and non-targets, and then we compare the allele frequency distribution between the potential co-express microRNAs and transcripts and a control, which we are working which one is the best control. It's not a straightforward um, answer, but uh, so for instance, in the case of Drosophila, the control was uh, zygotic genes that are not maternal. And then if in the allele frequency distribution, you find out that the distribution is skewed or is shift towards the non-target allele, compared to the to the null distribution, and then you compute some statistics like Olmode of Smirnov, or there are many other ways of doing it, um, you can conclude or at least suggest that there is selection against the target site. And of course, that brings all sort of technical problems uh, regarding the, the underlying model, etc. So we are working on, on how to correct this in, in many ways. So for instance, we are working on uh, um, studying the distribution of the allele frequency of the derived alleles, which takes into account which is the allele in an ancestral population and what is the most frequent allele in the current population. And that will give you directionality, whether evolution is moving towards um, conserving the target alleles or to get rid of the targets by the phenomenon I call uh, selection against the target alleles. But as I say, this is a, a... ongoing problem that we're working on and what is the best way of, of computing this with the data we have. When you are looking at the ancestral population, how far back do you need to look, let's say, in humans? Well, ideally, you can you can go up to, to mammals, but, but the problem is that more often these three-pair UTRs do, do not align well. There are a lot of problems with that. So what we are currently doing is uh, using just primate data that is already available and um, so basically, if the allele is conserved in several primates, uh, if I recall what is in chimp and gorilla, then we could, we consider this to be the, the ancestral allele and that we can compute the derived allele. But this is something again that is, uh, is a going on process and we are just checking, as you said, uh, how far we have to go to be confident on the ancestral allele. And as any other evolutionary problem is, is always the same. So the farther away you go, the more confident you are. But the less data you have, because you get rid of a lot of you know, alignments that do not uh, work out. Right, right. And so I think one thing that we didn't mention before, but which is useful to know to understand uh, the subject is... Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think uh, most of the microRNA targets are in the, um, I think you mentioned, are in the three prime mm-hmm. ETR region, right? And this is why you can conclude that if uh, this change is selected against, it's not because 
like it's coding a protein or something, right? Mm-hmm. There, there yeah. are very few reasons for it to be selected against if it's not a microRNA target. Yes. Uh, so it's true that the, the majority of, of sites, at least as we know it, are in the three plant UTR. And, and one of the reasons of focus only on three plant UTRs is that, as you said, uh, we don't take into account other functional constraints that are in the coding region. Although I have to say that the actually sites in the coding regions are known and they may be more that we that we believe there is a the a series of papers by Artemis Hadigordiou she's in in Greece and she's shown a lot of microRNA target sites in the coding region so i'm not saying that they are not in the coding region but as you said um going into the evolutionary models that also take into account the codons and other complexities of the of the coding region uh it may be a bit intimidating at this level so that's why we want to to focus on simpler models however we are also aware that there are other selective pressures on 3 prime UTRs that may affect our analysis, and we need to correct. For instance, uh, RNA-binding proteins that exist, and they are regulating these genes, are also the 3D structure of the of the 3 prime UTRs that they also fold and form some structures. But as I said, it's, it's more straightforward to analyze 3 prime UTRs rather than that focus on coding sequences. Uh-huh. So when we say that uh, many microRNA targets are in the 3 prime UTR, it may reflect our own biases that we are more eager to look for them there rather than the biological phenomenon? Uh, it's an interesting question. I, I think the majority of them are in the 3 prime UTR for, for several reasons. First of all, because uh, it's... You know, there is a lot of interference if you have a target site in the coding region. And also in the 5 prime UTR, it may not be um, uh, uh, very useful because it's harder to, to claim all the, to, to call all the risks, complex machinery that needs a lot of space. It's easier to do it in 3 prime UTR. However, there is an, an, an element of truth of what you said, and, and that's something that we scientists have to take into account. Um, we need hypotheses and models to do science. Without knowledge, we cannot do science. You cannot go to nature observed and reach conclusions. You need always your model. And our current model is that 3 prime UTRs hold the majority of microRNA target sites. It may be, I don't know, I don't think so, but it may be that at the end, the majority of functional target sites are in the coding regions. It may be, I don't know. But if that's the case, you know, we we'll need to, to reconstruct the whole science of, of microRNAs. But if you think about it, the, the fact that we didn't know about microRNAs until the 1990s, it's not because we didn't look uh, in the cell. It's just because we didn't know they exist. And it sounds silly, but it is not. So until Victor Ambrose, uh, you know, cloned this specific microRNA that took ages using the techniques that you were using for coding genes, right? But at the end, hard work, he sequenced this, uh, he detected this microRNA. Until he didn't do so, we didn't know microRNAs exist. After that, because you know what to look for, it's very easy to detect them. Yeah, that's the same the same uh, idea. So now we assume that they are all in the three plan UTR, and I believe most microRNA target sites are in the three plan UTR. But until no one proves that they uh, may be in you know in another site, we, we will look at them at the same depth that we look at the three plan UTR. Mm-hmm. And I also had a question about choosing the controls. So you mentioned that in the Drosophila experiment, you picked uh, the controls which were on different genes. I'm curious, is there a reason not to pick as controls maybe different nucleotides in the same 3' prime UTR, but not in the seed region, but somewhere nearby that might demonstrate similar mutation dynamic? Yeah, they... This is something we want to, to incorporate to take into account the mutational bias. Because different 3 prime UTRs, they may have different mutation bias depending on the, on the sequence 
depending on the, on the nucleotide composition. Uh, to be honest, uh, it hasn't been implemented yet. It's something we have in our, in our radar. So at the moment, we are focusing on express and non-co-express genes, although we are also taking into account the nucleotide composition to correct for this potential bias. But that's a good point. When you do insidious, when you do microRNA target site prediction, do you try to incorporate to deduce somehow where the uh, three prime UTR starts, or do you consider the whole transcript? No, not at all. Uh, so you have to. So basically, you fed into see this is the transcript you want to to analyze. So it's already assumed that it's a three prime UTR. When, when you run it through synthesis. Although synthesis allows you to select, for instance, for the longest 3-plan UTR, if you have multiple 3-plan UTRs for the same gene. What does that mean? What does the longest 3-plan UTR mean? Oh, yes. Uh, so when you go to a, you know, to ensemble or any database of 3-plan UTRs, you, more often than not, you get several 3-plan UTRs per gene. And that's because of uh, alternative splicing, or, or in that case, it's alternative poly-A sites. So the common way of dealing with that in most, if not all, prediction algorithms is to select the longest 3-plan UTR. Uh, some programs, what they do, they do is to select the highest expressed 3-plan UTR. But that depends on the data sets you are using. So what we are doing in, in SeedVisis is that you put several 3-plan UTRs for the same gene. And if you want, if you select the option, it will select the longest one, which will have the longest number of targets. But you can change that. I'm not supposed to talk much about it because this is something we are preparing a paper on it. But actually, even this strategy can be flawed. And most, if not all, traditional algorithms are, are really flawed because the selection of three-plan UTRs have to be made careful because there are three-plan UTRs that actually are not um, reflection of actual gene transcripts. But that's something to mm-hmm. maybe to discuss in, at a different moment. Yeah, so... This uh, multiple three prime UTRs they arise mm-hmm. because we consider um, this at the level of genes, not at the level of individual transcripts, right? Mm-hmm. For each mm-hmm. transcript, there's still like a single UTR. Yeah, each transcript have a different, uh, a single UTR, but each gene can have different transcripts, some of which may have different three prime UTRs, different lengths. Okay, got it. Uh, let's talk about the algorithms now. So you mentioned that there are like a few very simple rules that are based purely on the primary sequence mm-hmm. and uh, they allow you to predict with uh, more or less high accuracy um, the microRNA target sites. Do we understand where these rules uh, come from so i understand they were discovered purely experimentally but uh, they they look a bit peculiar so for instance this uh, microRNA which consists of 20 something nucleotides and you're supposed to look at uh, the very particular like eight nucleotides at the beginning why why is it so yeah this uh, I, I agree they are very peculiar uh, particularly in in animals because the rules i'm talking about are the rules of microRNAs in animals so if you go to plants actually it's the whole microRNA which is pair to the transcript which makes more sense of one main thing but in in animals uh, these rules um started to be uh discovered when actually when, when the first high throughput experiments of microRNA genes basically of, of microRNAs in in fly and and mammals so what these people found, these other groups found, is that when they look at the target sites uh, of the pairing sites of the microRNAs and the 3 prime UTRs, that the pairing was mostly in these first nucleotides, 
the nucleotides two to seven of the of the microRNA equivalent, and then less in the other. So that kind of I thought it was a bit surprising at the time, uh, but that triggered later on a series of experiments. And actually, it was not straightforward. It's not that they found this and then everybody believed it. There were like two, let's say, traditions of microRNA target prediction algorithms based on two different traditions of how targets may look like. So one first tradition is the one of the seeds, canonical seed, which is the one that is mostly accepted today. Mostly, not all, but mostly. Which is that only six, seven nucleotides are sufficient to trigger the response of the of the microRNA interaction. Um, so the you know collection of algorithms that went in that direction. Uh, the other tradition uh, comes from the belief, and that was before we knew about this seed region, that uh, you need the whole pairing of the microRNA and to have a stable duplex. RNA, RNA duplex. So there were a bunch of algorithms that they were actually computing the folding energies, the pairing energies of these um, uh, two molecules. And actually, I think they both are complementary because microRNAs that pair in more than the six, seven nucleotides, they are more efficient because they degrade the transcript, actually. Uh, but nowadays, after many experiments by, I mentioned a few of them, uh, uh, Dave Bartel, uh, Phil Seymour, um, I'm missing two or three big names now that I, I can remember. They did systematic experiments to test the efficiency of the different type of targets in synthetic transcripts for a specific microRNAs. And they found out actually that this seed region is very important and is the most important determinant. So having this complementary to these seven, six, seven nucleotides plus a couple of feature, extra features, that's what makes a target efficient. And also if two target sites are close to each other, a few tens of nucleotides away at most. This is more efficient, even. Um, but as I said, uh, it's, this is it's always a model. That's what we believe it is. Uh, it, it looks like it works like that, but it's, uh, so far our, our current model of targets. And also taking the account all these experiments are very difficult to accomplish. Are not are not easy. So I, I really admire and respect all these all these labs doing these experiments. But sometimes they're so difficult that you cannot even use the standard physiological conditions. So, for instance, some of the experiments are done in argonaut 2, which is a protein that is involved in RNA-mediated regulation, but actually is the paralog argonaut 1, the one that is involved in microRNA regulation, whilst argonaut 2 is mostly involved in, in small interfering RNA regulation. So, some of these experiments are very interesting, very suggestive, but... One cannot be 100% sure, to be honest, that this is what is happening in the cell, actually. So long story short, that's the, the best guess we have, that seed regions, canonical sites, and marginal sites are behind uh, microRNA-based regulation. Yeah, and uh, I sort of can get behind this reasoning that uh, perhaps six or seven nucleotides are enough to bind the RNA, but... Then still, this doesn't answer the question why these particular six or seven. Does it have anything to do with the like the way microRNA is placed within the risk complex? Yes. Uh, well, there is. Um, can't remember the paper now. There is a a model, specific model that explain or suggest why this is happening. It has to do with the structural features of of argonaut, which is the kind of protein that binds to the RNA dimer complex. So when the so the microRNA when it's processed and it's mature, it's bound to an argonaut protein as a complex, as a ribonucleoprotein, and this whole complex scan the three prime UTR, finding the target. And it has to do with the structural features of this complex in which only these first few nucleotides are exposed 
against other RNA during the scanning and the other are inverted inside the protein. So it has to do with the structural thermodynamical properties of the of the protein complex. Although it's, again, it's a, it's a it's a model that um, is, is the best we have so far. Okay, and uh, also if it turns out that um, the microRNAs target sites are indeed more common in three prime GTRs, do we have a model that might? explain that like how does the risk complex manage to to find that three prime guitar region i'm not sure about that uh to be honest uh, i i don't know 100 but my guess would be that the, the coding region will be uh, busy with ribosomes so the coding region because it's been translated they will have uh, ribosomes and other associated proteins so it will be quite fully packed so if you look at the at the famous pictures of these Christmas trees, which is, you know, and of the transcription, and then those of the translation, that you see the RNA molecule with a lot of balls, which are the, the ribosomes that are attached, you will always see a tail with no ribosomes. So my guess is that this region is free or more open to be accessed, and that's why the the, the argonaut proteins and the risk complex recognize easier the, the three-prime UTRs. Okay, makes sense. So going back to Sid Vicious, uh, we have talked about different separate features, maybe at different times of the podcast. Mm -hmm. Do you want to summarize and put them into a big picture of what Sid Vicious ultimately is or, or strives to be? Okay, so Sid Vicious, uh, it's a, I use the word versatile, microRNA target prediction, is not aimed to replace any other target prediction algorithm yet it aims to complement all existing algorithms. Um, the main feature is that you can run CTVCs either standalone or in the, in the web server to predict targets on your own data set, no matter which micronis you use or, or, or 3 plan UTRs. Let's make it clear, what are the limitations of the web server uh, version and when one might find the web server version useful and, and sufficient and when would one want to go to the command line version? Yes, that's a good point. So, so the web server version it has some technical limitations, like uh, no more than five megabytes of file upload. So the web server is useful for researchers that are not interested in high throughput analysis of targets. They just have one, two genes, maybe a few tens of genes, and they want to know the targets for specific microRNAs. That sometimes happens when you get your own three plan UTRs that are not in any database and you still want to check those, like for a new genome, whatever. And so in that case, the web server is the best option because you can run all the parameters that the standalone version have. You have to run it separately, but you can run it. And you have a very nice visual display, and you can go through your results. However, if you want to do more than that, like studying a full transcription with a full set of microRNAs, the server pretty much will collapse because the amount of memory allocated for each one of the process is very small. Um, so you need to, to run the standalone version. However, I think that the documentation, my feeling is that is detailed enough such that anyone can run CDVCs in, in some computer, as long as you have a Unix computer, either a Mac or a Linux. So if you want to do more like a prediction of in a few genes, you should go to the standalone version, run it in your machine, and then there is the only limitation is your computer. What about the uh, custom microRNA sets? Does the web server use like the standard mirror base? Uh, can you customize that? You can customize. Actually, the default form is just an, an empty form. So you can put any microRNA you want that you copy paste or upload from your data set. If you want to run from mirror base, actually, uh, there is a feature in the web page which uh, we call Seed Bank, which is 
a list of pre-compute targets as the, the other software does. So, so you can go to, currently I have a human, mouse, chimp, rat, and drosophila, I think. Maybe see, I guess I don't remember. Five, six pieces, uh, in which the target has been pre-computed using the last version of Mirbase and the last version of Assemble. So the aim is to increase this list to more. So if you want to go for the standard targets, you know, known species and known microRNAs, you can go to SeedBank and browse, and, and you can get the targets. No problem. So one feature is that you can download SeedVicious and uh, run it yourself. And in this high-throughput mode, does it use any external software or does it do like searching on its own? Uh, it does use standard software for the extra features. So if you're using the basic uh, capabilities of, of seed features, you don't need any anything external. Um, there are a couple of things that you need external software, but it's already included in the package, pre-compiled for, for 64-bit computers. Um, so one of the things that you can compute the, the pairing energy between the microRNA and the transcript. So in order to do so, uh, it relies on a, on a program called RNA eval that comes from the Vieira package, which is a very popular package for RNA analysis. So in that case, SIDVCs will call the RNA eval and compute the energy and report it back. So that's one of the things. But as I said, it comes with the package. And the other program that is needed, uh, it has to do with a feature I, I didn't mention here, which has to do with Evolution. So one of the things I said is that in order to work out the evolution or the evolutionary dynamics of target sites, uh, it'll be silly and incurring in a circular reasoning to use algorithms that use evolutionary conservation as a method to detect targets. However, if you don't use evolutionary conservation and you detect the targets in different species, you can then compute the gains and losses of micronate target sites across a given set of species. This can be done using a, a several algorithms, but the most popular is, is uh, the maximum parsimony, something called dolo parsimony, which assumes uh, different rates of gains and losses. And uh, this algorithm is implemented in an external program, which is Filip. Filip is, is one of the most popular phylogenetic software. So the program is called dolop or dolop. is in, is included in, in Filip, and I include this dolop executable in the in the CDVCs. So it should work out of the box. So you mentioned that SIDVicious can compute uh, the um, RNA binding energy. What are the scenarios where uh, you might find this useful? Well, to be honest, I include that um, in view of the future that I may want to filter targets given the energy. Like, for instance, whether the near targets uh, have an impact on the energy and not only on the pairing, or if near targets that actually they're not supposed to be target but that they keep the energy they may be acting as a target so that's kind of the ideal scenario i was thinking about i haven't done anything with the energies yet i just implemented because this is one of the things i wanted to 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 have it in the program and also for for people to try out and see if they find it useful one other mode that i noticed in sid vicious is uh so-called alignment mode mm -hmm. and that was a bit confusing because i assumed it had to do something with like bam files and uh, sequence alignment, but apparently I was wrong. So can you explain what that is? Yes. Okay. Um, so the alignment uh, is a faster format and it has to do with alignments to study evolution. So this uh, gains and losses that I mentioned, it requires that different 3.UTRs for different species are aligned, meaning that each nucleotide that is homologous orthologous to another nucleotide is in the same position, adding gaps. So that way the program will understand that different positions are conserved or are 
you know, correspond to the same position in different species. I said the species, but it can be different genes in the same species that are parallelous, that they have a common evolutionary origin. And so that's uh, one of the things uh, why the alignment is needed. The other thing is that even if you don't do evolutionary analysis, if you have different genes that are aligned, if you call the program with the aligned function, what it would do is to report the target sites with the position in the three prime UTR for each one of the of the sequences, but also the position in the alignment to make sure you know that, the, for instance, if you have different genes for different species, there may be some gaps between the species and the same target site, maybe in a different position. For instance, nucleotide twenty five in humans, nucleotide 37 in mouse, but with the align mode we'll recognize that it's actually the same position and I will tell you, in the alignment is position 55 in both. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to include the, the alignment mode as well. Mm-hmm. So in this uh, FASTA file that is used for um, for the alignment mode, how do you group aligned sequences together or does it assume that everything in the FASTA file is like uh, alignment of the Paralogous sequences? Yes, it assumes everything is aligned. I include a couple of controls uh, to make sure that before the program runs, the file looks like it should like look like like the length is correct, the formatting is correct, and it will report if there is an error. But it's something I want to, to add more into the program, to work more in the, in the alignments, because these alignments can be very problematic. So I want to include in the future, in the near future, other controls, like if the sequences in the alignment are, let's say, similar enough, yeah. but that's something that's not included yet. And uh, if one wants to prepare such a FAST file, how, how would they do it? Are there any tools that prepare these uh, fast alignments? Uh, actually, that's one of the, the things I want to include in the second version of the manual. I'm really working on it. So there are two ways. First of all, you download the three-point UTRs, the genes you want, the species you want, and then you align them yourself using ClusterLex or, or Muscle or Mafti or any other alignment program. That's one of the ways of doing it. The other way, which I think is more accurate, let's say, is to use the alignments that are already available in other pages like UCSC that they are really aligned all the genomes and so on. This is the kind of data that, for instance, uh, TargetScan uses. So they download data from UCSC, they pass the data, and uh, and that's the data they use. So my goal for the next version of the manual is to include a small tutorial on how to download this data, which is pretty straightforward if you know how to how to run the command and to embed it into into SeedVisus. And also, if you're running your own data that nobody has, like your custom data from your lab, how to align them with uh, with Mufti, which is the program I, I prefer to use, and how to do a quality check control before feeding it into, into SeedVisus. Uh, interesting. I'm probably so used to uh, the commands that do alignment that they output SAM or BAM files, and yes. I'm not even aware of this whole uh, bunch of programs that are apparently output alignments in the faster format. Yeah, that's because uh, BAM and SAM are, are for you know sequencing, resequencing, and they assume a reference genome or something reference. Whilst the other collection of of programs, uh, they are built upon evolutionary models. Actually, mm-hmm. do you want to talk about? Um, some other interesting uh, research projects that uh, were done using SidVicious, but by you or someone else? So, uh, well, with the current SidVicious, not much because it's just released and I just put it together and, and we are using it now for, for this uh, analysis of human populations. I'm also working with, well, my, uh, one of my PhD students is working with SidVicious as well to, to study the um, evolution of microarray target sites and uh, signaling pathways, which is uh, finding very interesting uh, results. But the previous version of SidVicious, because before it was uh, wrap up, 
like that has been used by by myself in in other papers like investigating the different targets between the different products of the same macronide gene uh, have been used by some of my colleagues to do similar experiments or similar analysis uh, nothing very complicated it's just the fact that uh, they could use a, a software that was not depending on evolutionary conservation and was easy to run in custom data sets and that's kind of what triggers me to put the script together because uh, I've saw already a few papers that they acknowledge Antonio Marco you know thanks for sharing your script and then I thought well that would be better if it was a paper you know and they say we use this paper. So that's the other thing that kind of triggered me to wrap everything together and, and publish a paper. Awesome. Yeah. I think I only saw a preprint so far. Is it accepted for publication somewhere? Not yet. So the very same day I put the preprint, I submitted for publication and it has been under review ever since. Mm -hmm. So it has been one month already. So hopefully I, I will hear news soon. But I'm a very open science advocate. So, so of course I want my paper published in a, in a journal with uh, high visibility so people can see it. But I'm quite happy to see the paper is already in my archive and, and people is reading it and I get some comments. So that's, uh, that's enough to have at least a DOI to reference if anyone used the, the program. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, uh, so we'll be wrapping up. Is there anything else you'd like to cover or promote? Not really. Just go to, you know, to sidvicius.sx.asa.uk and play around. I'll be happy to respond any question anyone have. Uh, there is no such a thing as a silly question. Uh, if something doesn't work, please let me know. Um, and if you have any idea that could be implemented in the future, like analyzing some wacky data set that nobody knows and automatically, whatever, just let me know because all these things are the things I would like to, to include in, in future versions of, of seed visits. Awesome. Well, Antonio, uh, it was a great pleasure to talk to you. It was very interesting. My pleasure. Thank you for being on the podcast. Okay, thank you, Roman.